It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Last week, Russia's army invaded Ukraine. Russia's tanks, aircraft and soldiers began devastating attacks with volleys of cruise missiles and artillery. But in another domain, Ukraine had already been under attack from the Russians for some time. Ukrainian computer networks have long been the targets of espionage and hacks by Russian groups. And with the start of the invasion of Ukraine last week, Western governments have been on high alert for further digital threats from Russia. So far, at least, major cyber operations have been curiously absent. But that could all change in the coming days and weeks. How much damage could a Russian cyber attack do? Could the physical war in Ukraine turn into a war in cyberspace as well. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. The threat of cyber warfare has caused alarm in Ukraine and beyond in the past week. On today's show, we'll examine how cyber operations work. The best sorts of cyber attacks are the ones that the victim doesn't notice until they've already happened. So to coin a phrase, you're dealing with unknown unknowns in a way that is much rarer, I think, in the sort of physical world. What their role is in modern warfare. The purpose of cyber is to harass, annoy, disrupt, debilitate, demoralise, cost money, generally undermine people's ability to go about their own lives and whether a cyber war in Ukraine could spill over to the rest of the world. I personally believe you are going to see a significant uptick in cyber activity as an extension of this conflict that we are watching unfold, sadly. Nobody has a really clear definition of this idea. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence editor. He's led our coverage on the war in Ukraine, and he'll also be guiding me through today's show. Cyber war can be two things, I would say. It can be the use of cyber operations in a war, so for military purposes, helping you to seize a military objective, just like you would use artillery or just like you would use electronic warfare, you know, jamming or something else. But it can also convey a much bigger and I think more grand idea, the idea of cyber operations as a sort of way of waging warfare unto themselves, even without all the traditional blowing stuff up aspect of it. So in other words, a major cyber attack on someone's power grid or on their transport network, that could also be deemed cyber warfare in a sense, a kind of strategic attack on its own terms. I think what's really interesting is that cyber is the sort of dog that hasn't barked in this war so far. 
That's not to say, though, that so far in the conflict, there haven't been worrying incidents in Ukraine's digital infrastructure. So I've been looking into internet outages in Ukraine. Rebecca Jackson is a data journalist at The Economist. On Thursday, February 24th, just as Russia invaded Ukraine, internet connectivity dropped in Kharkiv. And Kharkiv is the second largest city in Ukraine. It's about 25 miles from the border. It has about 1.8 million residents. And in the early morning on Thursday, a quarter of those residents couldn't access the internet. And since there have been other similar outages in cities across Ukraine. It's impossible to say what the exact cause of an internet outage is. Computer hacking by bad actors, though, could be at play. There are three different ways that blackouts can occur. One is that there's just internet congestion. So when people are in crisis, they tend to call and text, and that can congest the networks. So Kyivstar, which is the country's largest mobile provider, found that their networks were underperforming because people were calling and texting so much. The other is that there can be sort of physical destruction to the internet infrastructure. So basically, as the shellings and explosions are going on, the infrastructure can literally physically be breaking down, which can cause internet disruptions. And the third is cyber attacks. And this is a tactic that Putin is quite in favor of. The Russian president made use of cyber attacks during his incursions into Georgia in 2008 and Crimea in 2014. These attacks have been on the rise since around February 15th. There are two specific kinds of websites that have been sort of the targets. The first is big state-owned financial institutions, so Oshad Bank and Privet Bank, which are, are two large banks. The websites went down on February 23rd. And the other is public-facing government websites, and so these include security services and foreign ministry websites. And last month in particular, several Ukrainian government websites were defaced with the message, be afraid and expect the worst. And American, Britain and other governments have attributed these attacks to Russia's military intelligence agency. The hacks themselves seem to vary in their levels of sophistication. These attacks work in a bunch of different ways. One is called distributed denial of service attacks. And so what these do is that they flood networks with huge amounts of traffic until the website crashes. The way these things work is that the attackers compromise large numbers of other computers. That doesn't have to be desktops or anything like that. Home routers, which have little computers inside them, are a popular target. That's Tim Cross, The Economist, Technology and Society Editor. And then once you've got this large collection of other computers, which is called a botnet, you use them to just flood your target with requests for information, with messages, with junk, essentially, over the internet. And that ties it down so much, trying to reply to these thousands or millions of messages, that none of its legitimate customers can actually get through. It's a bit like constantly redialing someone's phone number so that nobody else can make calls to them. These attacks aren't as sophisticated as those that have made headlines in recent years. For example, the ransomware attack on an oil pipeline in America in 2021. A ransomware attack is where the attacker gains access to a computer system, finds something valuable on it, and that could be presidential speeches, invasion plans, it could be a company's financial reports, or it could be a private citizen's collection of sentimental photographs. And then they encrypt them with the same sort of technologies that are used to encrypt credit card details and all that kind of thing. And what you then do is you send a message to the victim saying, 
All your files are encrypted. They're unusable. If you look at them, they'll just look like meaningless gibberish. If you want them back, you have to pay me money. And when you pay me money, I will send you the decryption key. And if you carry out this attack competently, there's no way for the victim to guess what the decryption key is. It would take them hundreds of millions of years to recover the files manually. On the other hand, if they've been diligent about backups, they can ignore the ransomware message. And provided they've got rid of the malware, they can just restore all their data from backups and and carry on as before. Another type of malware appears to have been used in Ukraine too. There's also been a more sophisticated type of attack called a wiper malware. And so what this does is it's code that infects computers and intends to wipe or overwrite hard drives. And this specific one that was found on February 23rd is called Hermetic Wiper. And this has been shown to be attacking hundreds of computers across Ukraine. And interestingly, Hermetic Wiper was found to actually have been compiled for the first time in mid-December. And so what this shows is that these cyber attacks have actually been planned for quite some months. Attacks have also taken place in the other direction, on Russia and its closest ally, Belarus. Since the war has begun, we've also seen, I think, a pretty interesting attack where activist hackers in Belarus have said they breached computers that controlled the country's trains and they brought the railway network not completely to a halt, but they stopped some trains and therefore stopped some Russian soldiers moving into Ukraine. Those are certainly cyber attacks in one sense. But are they acts of cyber warfare? Uh, Not really. And I certainly haven't seen Russia conduct major cyber operations alongside its ground invasion, for example, to paralyse. Ukrainian command systems or to sow chaos in Kiev. I haven't seen very much of that. And I think a lot of us are asking, why haven't we? Cyber attacks, cyber operations don't, by and large, kill people. Kieran Martin set up and led Britain's National Cyber Security Centre from 2014 to 2020. He's now a professor at the University of Oxford. You don't invade and conquer a country with computer code. You do it with conventional military power. The purpose of cyber is to harass, annoy, disrupt, debilitate, demoralise, cost money, generally undermine people's ability to go about their own lives in the way that they would otherwise do, undermine the confidence in their government. So there's an awful lot of hype about so-called cyber war, but it's really a sort of secondary and supportive tool of state objectives. But still, there are plenty of reasons why cyber attacks have got people worried. Here's Tim Cross. The sorts of cyber attacks that worry people most when they think about cyber war are those that target computer systems that control things in the real world. So lots of power grids now are remotely administered by computers. So if you get into them, you could potentially shut them off. Hydroelectric dams are controlled by computers or enrichment centrifuges or cars or military hardware has computer chips in them. If there was some way to compromise that, you could compromise the hardware. Any kind of cyber attack that uses the computer to do something harmful in the real world, I think if you're thinking about cyber war, that's what you spend a lot of your time worrying about. It's worth saying here that even if a computer-controlled system is successfully hacked, it doesn't automatically lead to disastrous consequences. If you take even something where people might be in danger, like an air traffic control system or a railway network, if the systems that you're hacking are designed and operated properly, then they will not be invulnerable to cyber attack, but they should be invulnerable to catastrophic failure. An air traffic control system at a major airport will be designed to fail completely, but safely. 
even by accident, never mind if nobody hacks it, because there has to be a system if there's a complete catastrophic failure of an air traffic control system to land all the planes safely. It would cause massive disruption and huge inconvenience and huge economic cost, but the planes wouldn't crash. So there's a huge amount of misunderstanding of cyber war, if you like. That being said, cyber attacks can be extremely damaging, and not just to the intended target. Probably the cyber event with the greatest global impact was NotPetya in May of 2017. Mike Rogers is the former commander of the United States Cyber Command. He's also former director of the American National Security Agency. NotPetya was the outcome of the Russians using a supply chain attack that they hoped would have an impact in Ukraine, but based on the way they went about doing it, it broadly proliferated well beyond Ukraine. Embedded in an innocuous piece of tax software, the virus spread to federal agencies, transport systems, cash machines, even the radiation monitors in Chernobyl, the site of the world's worst nuclear power accident. That ended up having global implications that ended up costing, it depends what source you want to use, but not that you probably had a financial impact in the billions. So there's a good example of If you're developing attack strategies and capabilities, you need to be very mindful about proliferation, about expansion beyond the initial set of targets, about second and third order impacts. In more sophisticated cyber attacks, the code can be programmed to self-destruct if it reaches the wrong target. The NotPetya code didn't seem to have such guardrails. Frankly, if the Russian attackers in this case had been better at their job, it wouldn't have been so damaging because they were trying to harass Ukraine again. But they executed it poorly. And so it jumped from Ukraine. You know, it was attacking Ukrainian businesses. Lots of them were multinational businesses. It spread. It went viral. It went mad. It went all over the world. It completely wiped out the systems of Maersk, the shipping giant. And at one point, Maersk, you know, it's got what, a fifth of the world's merchant shipping fleet or something like that, was communicating with its ships via WhatsApp. It disrupted production of a chocolate factory in Tasmania. And then it did a lot of damage to Rosneft, a giant Russian energy company. So in, there was a self-defeating aspect to it. I don't think any of us, to include the Russians, want to get into a cyber war that goes beyond Ukraine and then escalates this. Having said that, I believe the Russians have come to the conclusion that short of that, cyber still offers some attractive options for them. The concern is what happens if you miscalculate? What happens if you make a mistake? What happens if this proliferates or has second and third order impacts you did not anticipate? Russia has a long track record in cyber operations. The GRU is Russia's military intelligence service. It's got a fantastic record in spying against the West. That's The Economist, Shashank Joshi again. But in recent years, it's also been incredibly active in cyber operations. So, for example, when Russia intervened in America's 2016 elections, it did so in part using the GRU, that that was one of the groups inside American networks that then released the information it had learned to influence those elections. Russia file, it is a sweeping federal indictment that names individual Russians and several companies and details a highly orchestrated campaign to interfere with the U.S. election in 2016. It's hacking group 
group even has its own name, according to Western cybersecurity agencies. It's called Fancy Bear, which is sort of one of these great names that these companies assign to different states and their hacking networks. And it's been busy all across the world. You know, it's penetrated Germany's parliament. I think it hacked Emmanuel Macron's campaign for the French presidency and all sorts of things like that. So it's a very aggressive, assertive agency in cyberspace. In 2020, the Americans discovered the most audacious cyber operation yet against their government infrastructure, an attack that they believe was orchestrated by the Russians. SolarWinds was an event where the primary focus was US and Western targets, governments, national security, educational institutions. As they did with NotPetya, they once again used the supply chain method. In this case, SolarWinds happens to be a company which generates a software that is used by IT professionals as part of their IT controls and oversight. It's a a software that helps them in the execution of their IT duties. It's a software that's widely deployed on a global basis, and it's a software that is also widely used in their target networks they were going after, government, education systems, etc. This hack was very, very sophisticated. Kieran Martin again. It was extremely clever. It was very stealthy. And it was stealthy because it was an espionage operation. And it was a major strategic setback for the US and allies because it became clear once it was discovered that Russian operatives from the Russian Foreign Services Intelligence Agency, the SBR, had been lurking in major American networks for months in the course of 2020. When that became clear, there was a lot of talk in parts of Capitol Hill, for example, about how this was an act of aggression bordering on war by Russia. This was a serious operation striking at the heart of America's government. President Joe Biden accused Russia of, once again, interfering with American democracy. I have approved several steps, including the expulsion of several Russian officials as a consequence of their actions. I've also signed an executive order authorizing new measures, including sanctions to address specific harmful actions that Russia has taken against U.S. interests. Now, it was an extremely sophisticated attack. It was an extremely damaging episode for the United States, but it was essentially an espionage operation and espionage is tolerated in the international order. So I think cyber attacks are a diverse set of things. And I just think there is that risk of miscalculation and misreaction if something like solar winds emerge and people see this as an act of aggression. It's very damaging, but it's it's spying. It's what countries do. As the war in Ukraine deepens, intelligence experts worry that Russia could start to deploy cyber attacks as a way to retaliate against sanctions imposed by Western countries. Given the Western response to date, which has largely been around sanctions and economic instruments, if you will, I believe the Russians also are spending some time thinking, so what are the options for us, Russia, to potentially respond to that? Mike Rogers. And I believe that cyber disinformation, sabotage, etc., among the things that the Russians are considering. And I personally believe you are going to see a significant uptick in cyber activity as an extension of this conflict that we are watching unfold, sadly, in Ukraine. And I would argue you're already seeing that. If you look at the Russians have indicated the creation of a series of patriotic hacker groups who have indicated they will use their capabilities to support Russia, I believe that you're going to see the Russians will engage in cyber both directly as well as through the use of surrogates, 
whether they be these, quote, ad hoc patriotic groups, whether they be criminal groups, potentially, that the Russians have existing relationships with. I believe that you will see cyber play out as a means for the Russians to inflict economic pain in the West. Those hacker groups that Mike Rogers mentioned pose a significant risk to countries outside Russia. Russia hosts the majority of the world's serious cyber criminality. That's not nearly as sophisticated as the capabilities of the Russian state, but it can cause an awful lot of pain. So ransomware is predominantly practiced by Russian criminals. This is where criminals hack into a network, lock you out of it, steal some data, and then they double extort you. They say, you're not getting back into your network until you pay us money, and also we'll publish all this data online if you don't pay us this money. And last year, that caused a fuel shortage on the east coast of the US. It caused massive disruption of the Irish healthcare system. It caused delays in vaccine bookings in Rome. So there's an awful lot of pain that can be caused. These criminals exist in Russia because the Russian state lets them. It doesn't completely control them. Uh, they're not organs of the state. They're criminal gangs. But the West doesn't allow such large-scale criminality to exist within its borders. Many of these criminal hacker groups have been mobilised by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. These gangs all have names, and one of them is called the Conti Ransomware Gang, and they've just issued a statement saying we are proud Russian patriots and we will attack any country that dares to challenge what Russia is doing at the minute. So you can see that sort of criminal attack by proxy. I think it'll be interesting seeing this Ukraine situation. Mike Rogers. As the Russians potentially look for greater uses of cyber, more aggressive uses of cyber, do they also start to identify surrogates or third parties like criminal groups or these patriotic hacker groups that potentially could assist them, which would also provide the Russians with a measure of plausible deniability? Hey, it's not the Russian state that is directing, that is ordering, that is executing this. You can't hold us, the Russian government, responsible. I would think that that would be an attractive part of their strategy personally. Often it's very hard to tell the difference for certain between, you know, freelancers on the one hand, full-on state-backed actors on the other, and people who sit kind of somewhere in the middle who act to further the state's interests but aren't directly controlled by them, though are kind of tolerated. The economist Tim Cross. And in the case of Russia in particular, this is very useful because it gives them plausible deniability. And I think that extends not only to how it's presented externally, but also to some of the people who do these things. So it is possible to move relatively fluidly between being a freelance hacker and, you know, doing work directly for the state then moving back later to being a sort of freelance hacker. So I think the the short version is it's very hard to tell the difference and we can't always reliably do it. But the business of freelance hackers, as Tim put it, isn't unique to Russia. Some activist groups, or hacktivists, have assembled themselves to support Ukraine in the current conflict. One group is responsible for the Belarusian railway hack that Shashank mentioned earlier. Another hacking collective, called Anonymous, has declared a cyber war on Russia, and has been attempting to cause chaos with Russia's communication systems. From distributed denial-of-service attacks on Russian government websites, to overriding broadcasts on state TV. They even got into maritime tracking systems and renamed the president's yacht to a jumble of seemingly random letters, FCKPTN. So much of this activity in cyber 
uses not only tools and capabilities developed by nation states, but also, quite frankly, tools and capabilities developed by individuals and the broader commercial world. Mike Rogers. The proliferation of capabilities and the increasing level of capability and capacity that most nation states are enjoying, so to speak, or investing in, it isn't driven just by government-developed capabilities. That's not the nature of cyber. It's one of the things that differentiates it in some ways from other more conventional forms of warfare, where quite frankly, the nation state tends to develop the capabilities and the technologies and controls their applications. I mean, we don't have independent users of cruise missiles. We don't have independent users out there of nuclear weapons. To date, at least, the nation state has generally controlled those kinds of activities and has been the one to actually make the decision whether or not they should be employed. Cyber is very different. There's some really interesting dimensions of this. This will prove to be a significant event and milestone, I believe, in cyber and cyber warfare. Beyond these hacktivist groups, in recent weeks, NATO countries have taken the unusual step of talking about offensive cyber attacks. Significant side, the National Cyber Force, which is the United Kingdom's offensive cyber capability. That's Britain's Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, speaking in Parliament. I'm a soldier. I was always taught the best part of defence is offence. Last week, NBC News reported that Joe Biden had been presented with options to make use of cyber weapons against Russia. So let's talk through what are the options on the table right now for President Biden? Is this something we're really considering? This would be the most significant use of American offensive cyber in history. What we're talking about here are things like um, making trains go off the tracks so that they can't resupply Russian troops, potentially shutting down the internet, attacks on Russian critical infrastructure. There was one anonymous senior US government source quoted in that piece saying, we could do anything, take the trains, uh, we could slow them down, or we could even force them off the rails. Kieran Martin, the former head of Britain's National Cybersecurity Centre. Now, those are two quite different things. Of course, you could slow them down. But is there a train where there is a computer which can actually force the train off the rails? By and large, there isn't. Also, technically, that sort of major operation is very hard to do. And one of the things I think is mischaracterized about it is that cyber isn't a weapon that you just point at something and fire. It's not a battalion of armed soldiers that you can order to go and move uh, somewhere and start shooting. You have to hack into a network, remain undetected for a significant period of time, find the right controls whilst remaining undetected, apply some really sophisticated code, and then have the impact, hoping that the system is badly configured. Probably the most high-profile example of that was the Stuxnet attack in 2011. This was an American-Israeli attempt to hack centrifuges in Iran's nuclear facilities. This is 11 years ago. It still is some of the most sophisticated malicious code I've ever seen. Very specifically hunted down parts of the Iranian nuclear reactor system and stopped it working without that much collateral damage to other machines around the world. What was so clever about Stuxnet, as well as its power, was the fact that it was designed very explicitly to switch itself off if it got the wrong target. So that meant that it didn't, if you like, go viral. 
But what's interesting about that is that that operation took about three years and cost huge amounts of money. So it's not really a scalable sort of operation. So this idea that there are red buttons sitting on leaders' desks around the world marked cyber that they can just press and cause devastating effect is a mischaracterization. It's worth remembering that in today's hyper-connected technological world, it's not just governments who are at risk from hacks and other cyber operations. What is really interesting to me is, given this situation in Ukraine, I believe you're now going to see cyber employed in a much potentially broader warfare area. Former head of America's Cyber Command, Mike Rogers again. And for the first time, really, private entities, companies, etc., within the private sector, now could become targets not for revenue, not for espionage purposes, but because they're viewed as, as a valid target in a broader conflict or crisis between nations. But who exactly is at risk? If we look at the Ukrainian situation, you know, who would I assess as the highest risks outside of Ukraine? I would highlight government targets, targets associated with providing support to Ukraine, businesses associated with economic activity in Russia or the Ukraine, i.e., hey, you're an American or a German company and you have part of your business operates in Russia or the Ukraine, I, I would think you could potentially be an attractive target. Businesses that represent brands that are somewhat iconic and are not just about the market or the sector they're in, but are generally perceived to be an extension or a visible element of American culture. Those are going to be attractive targets if you're sitting there in Moscow and then, you know, the unknown here is, look, part of your strategy, again, if you're the Russians would be, we would want to engage in cyber events that have some measure of visibility. We would want not just the target, but quite frankly, we would want the broader American society, its populace, as well as its government to know what we're doing, because you're also trying to send the message, look, we can make this a whole lot more painful if we want to. Remaining vigilant is a must. But the question on everyone's mind right now is how likely is a mass cyber attack? To date, you haven't seen as aggressive as you could see with respect to cyber as a vehicle by the Russians in the US and NATO or EU or the sanctioned nations, if you will, as an element of this Russian-Ukraine situation. I believe in part because, remember going into this, one of the things the Russians have been trying to say is this is about Ukraine right now at least. We're not interested in making this a broader global fight between Russia and the West. And so I think part of their very measured use of cyber so far has been they, they want to stick to that narrative and they don't want to take actions that could potentially expand it beyond that. Now, given the strength of the U.S. and Western reaction to what the Russians have done so far, I wonder if the Russians are going to step back and reassess that calculation and decide, hey, look, we need to come up with the means to place economic and political pressure on those nations that are executing sanctions against us. Well, I believe in light of that kind of calculation, you're going to see the Russians thinking about what kind of tools do I have to reach out and have an impact. And cyber clearly becomes very attractive in that regard. If a cyber attack spilled over into a NATO country, it's not clear what would happen. The alliance's secretary-general recently said 
that a cyber attack on one member of NATO could be deemed to be an attack on all. We have stated that um, cyber attacks can trigger Article 5, but we have never uh, gone into the position where we give a potential adversary the privilege of defining exactly when we trigger Article 5. The stakes are high for cybersecurity. But how much of a difference would it really make on the battlefield? What does all of this mean for the way in which a war is waged? That's coming up. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So far in the show today, we've explored how cyber attacks can disrupt an opponent. But do they really have the potential to change the way wars are fought? To discuss this, I'm here with Tim Cross, The Economist's technology and society editor, and Shashank Joshi, our defence editor. Tim, let's start with you. When is cybercrime or something that's simply an annoying attack or low-level disruption, like, you know, posting messages on Ukrainian websites. When does it become cyber warfare? Well, I think this is one of the most interesting and fundamental questions in this whole discussion, because this whole field is fairly new, and we don't really have norms that govern, you know, where the line lies in the way that we do with other kinds of war. So everyone, to some extent, is making this up as they go along. The example you gave of defacing websites that's fairly low level. It doesn't really sort of do too much at the sharp end of the war, but it will probably be looked upon less favourably than similar kind of mischief making might be in peacetime. So the answer, I'm afraid, is nobody knows, and it probably depends on the context. Shoshank, from your point of view then, when do you think, if ever actually, a cyber operation could be classed as something that's an act of war? I agree entirely with Tim. I'd just point out that there's something called the Tallinn Manual, which is written by lots of lawyers and an expert, and it goes through the various detailed way in which cyber operations have to be consistent with international humanitarian law. In other words, the law of armed conflict, if you use them in the context of a war. I also think it's important to understand that if you're doing it in the context of a war, then it's pretty obvious. So, for example, the war against Islamic State, the terrorist group, Britain and America use cyber operations to take down its drones and to take down its propaganda. But there are cases, I think, particularly in peacetime, when you have major effects that are caused in cyberspace. And there's a sort of interesting blurring of boundaries in the same way that there often is, by the way, with state-sponsored terrorism. So last year, for example, we saw hackers based in Russia disrupt one of the most important oil pipelines on America's east coast. Was it an act of war or was it an act of subversion or something else entirely? We're not entirely sure. But the answer to that really is also legally important. Think of the attack suspected to be conducted by Russia on Ukraine back in 2017. It was called the NotPetya attack, and it caused enormous damage all around the world. Insurers had to pay out huge amounts. But 
they had exemptions for acts of war. So was not Petya an act of war or not? And the answer we've just had from from courts in America recently from their perspective is that no, it wasn't. So it gives you a sense of just how blurred these boundaries are. When we spoke to Kieran Martin, he pointed out there's often a misunderstanding of what a cyber attack is. I mean, for example, sometimes they're espionage, but interpreted as cyber warfare. And he brought up this solar winds hack as an example. Tim, do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I think um, if you want to think of the internet or electronic systems as a new sort of place almost in which nations can act, so like the land, like the sea, like the air then some things you can do in that space count as as espionage and some things you can do count as war. You know, is parking a spying ship disguised as a fishing trawler off the coast of a country to listen in on its transmissions? You know, that's a fairly normal piece of espionage. It's what states do to each other quite often. Or, you know, having spies embedded with embassies, all of this stuff is sort of very normal. And a lot of the activity that takes place in those electronic networks, particularly in peacetime, is much, much closer to sort of traditional espionage and anything we would recognise as war. And Shashank, of course, espionage is a normal part of statecraft. And as you said earlier, given the lack of definitions of what constitutes something offensive or warfare, or was it just a piece of normal espionage, are we at a particularly dangerous time in things being miscalculated? It's really interesting because the actions that you do in cyberspace on computer networks, it's not easy to tell what the intentions are always. Although, of course, there are ways to judge based on the sort of code that you're using, the malware that you might be implanting, whether it looks like you're targeting vital systems that could be damaged that would take the whole system down, or whether you're exfiltrating lots of data, bringing it home to analyse in a way that a sort of traditional spy might do. I don't want to exaggerate the risk of that miscalculation. It's not as if everyone is going around watching Russian hackers in American networks going, oh my goodness, they might attack at any second. But when you have a large-scale attack, and we saw the SolarWinds attack, which was a really sweeping intrusion, as intrusion is the word that officials prefer to use rather than attack, across government networks, there were concerns that an intrusion on this scale could be what's called shaping activity or pre-positioning, when you're getting yourself ready for an attack. And while that's low probability, it's never easy to be absolutely sure of it. So I think you're right, miscalculation is a possibility in this area. Just to expand on Shashank's point, I think that's one place where the electronic realm does differ from the physical one, because I I use the example of a disguised fishing trawler. You know, even if the disguised fishing trawler is actually full of troops, it's not going to carry that many. It's not actually particularly a threat to anything. You can be fairly sure that this is pretty low level activity that you don't need to worry about. And the thing that makes that even worse, of course, is the best sorts of cyber attacks are the ones that the victim doesn't notice until they've already happened. So to coin a phrase, you're dealing with unknown unknowns in a way that is much rarer, I think, in in the sort of physical world. And that just adds to the uncertainty that every side has about just what is the adversary's capabilities, just how compromised are my systems. It's very hard to ever answer those questions definitively. Just getting back to the situation in Ukraine, Russia is one of the places in the world that has quite developed offensive cyber operations capabilities. I just wonder, Shashank, why we haven't seen a large-scale operation from Russia yet in that space? Or do we just not know about it? It's a really good question, and I haven't got a really good answer for you, Alok. I think one possibility is that they don't need to do it. You know, they felt like if you have lots of of armour and infantry and artillery, then 
what's the point of fiddling with a few computer networks here and there? At the end of the day, what matters is whether you can advance and take a city. Although I don't think that's entirely satisfying, because, of course, you can still assist your military advance. Another possibility is that they're just holding it back. You know, we've seen, certainly in the first few days of this war, the Russians haven't done a brilliant job. They've gone quite slowly. They've had logistical issues. They've made some pretty rookie errors here. So it may just be for the same reason they've not made good use of air power. They haven't made good use of cyber power. It's just sort of not very well integrated with the military instrument. But of course, I suppose beyond all of that, it remains possible that whilst they're extremely good at messing with democracy in European countries in America, while they're very good at stealing things, they just don't see any particularly strong military utility on the battlefield itself. Tim, what's your read on that? It seems to me you can boil it down to one of a sort of small number of broad answers, and it will be very interesting to find out which of these is true in the fullness of time. One is that having suffered these sort of attacks before, and Ukraine had a a very well-publicised attack on its power grid back in 2015, they've taken steps to reduce their vulnerabilities. You know, that's possible, but there's not sort of much evidence that that's happened. And then perhaps the sort of the least satisfying of all is that there's some other unknown factor that we haven't thought of that just means that for whatever reason, the consequences or the utility or, or the value of these kind of attacks is simply a bit overblown. Shoshank, in your view, is this going to become the age of cyber warfare or or do you think that that's to come in the future? Well, it's always important that we remember computer networks are computer networks. They're virtual spaces. They're not places where there are human beings inside them. If you want to take the power grid off, I still think it's going to be easier, even in 10 years, to drop a bomb on it than really have to go through some incredibly difficult leap of code to get to it. So cyber attacks will have their uses, they'll have their effects, and they'll be used in new ways that challenge us and surprise us. But they will always be in computer networks and the effect will be indirect. So cyber war is never going to be real war. It's always going to be one little subset of it. And I don't think ever the most important subset of it. The other thing I think to remember is that it's still relatively early days for this. This is probably the closest we've been in a sort of digital, very connected world to a full-on shooting war between two belligerents who are roughly equally high tech. And there is a line of thinking that goes, maybe cyber warfare now is roughly where air power was in 1911 or something, on the eve of the First World War. It was a new technology. People were thinking, well, this has to have a use in in war, but they weren't quite sure what it was yet. And in, in the early days of the First World War, you would see these very rickety contraptions flying up and down, trying to sort of gather intelligence and taking occasional pot shots at each other or at people on the ground with very, very ineffective weapons. And then by the time the Second World War came around, Germany was using dive bombers as a sort of integral part of its mechanised forces and using them to smash aside armies all over Europe. So it may be that it's just sort of too new a technology and that it may not play a decisive role in this war, but may do in another one in 10 years or 15 years or whatever. Tim, Shashank, thank you both very much. Thanks, Alok. Thanks, Alok. See you again here soon. Thanks also to Kieran Martin, Mike Rogers and The Economist's Rebecca Jackson. And thank you for listening to Babbage. The situation in Ukraine is developing rapidly, so to keep up to date, do go to our website, economist.com. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.